In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Uh, last time uh, we spoke about, uh, we, we finished to conclude in, in Genesis chapter 32. We were um, speaking about Jacob uh, after he had spent 20 years uh, uh, in his homeland in Padan Aram or Haran in that area, um, after he had fled from Esau. Um, he, he is now returning again to his home in Canaan and he is expecting to see Esau. And uh, he is, uh, as he is approaching, okay, he has this, this famous scene that we read about, which is the scene where he wrestles with God. So this is where we left off, um, and we're going to speak about it today, okay? So it says, and he rose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Okay? A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Okay, so here in this scene, Jacob is like alone and this mysterious man appears and he begins to fight with Jacob, he begins to wrestle with him. Okay, and, and Jacob, as he is wrestling with this man, he he's like in this battle. And he's trying to, he's like trying to endure this battle. He's trying to, to like continue fighting until the very end without, without giving up. And he says, what? I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay. Um, I'm going to read for you what St. Augustine says about this scene. Okay. He says, uh, He says, why did Jacob wrestle with him and caught him? Because the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Why did he wrestle? In order to take him by labor as whatever we get after strife, we hold to it more strongly. What do you think that means? What does that mean? Like when you work really hard for something or you can pray for something and it's something that you struggle with, you work really hard and put so much into it and you finally achieve it or God finally like gives it to you. It's not something you're going to take for granted. It's something you're going to really appreciate and love. Great. So something that we work hard to achieve is something that we value and something that we are going to uh, treat with respect and that we're not going to be so easy to let it go, right? Anything that we attain. You know what they say about people who win the lottery? You know, when, when, when people win the lottery, so many of them, they like go bankrupt in a very short amount of time. And you think that it would be the opposite. Like you think someone who wins the lottery would like appreciate like how valuable like all this, this money is and how, how much of a change in their life happened and they would be wise with it. But it's not, you know, when you don't work hard for something, you don't take for granted its value. And the same is true in the spiritual life, you know, and, and, and His Holiness Pope Shenouda, he always spoke about this idea of wrestling with God. Like when we go and we stand for prayer, 
we, we tell God, I am not going to leave until you bless me. Like, I'm not going to leave until you grant me something. Okay? Maybe God is not going to, in that moment, he's not going to give us exactly what we asked of him. Right? But we're going to experience God's presence and that we are going to feel like God answered our prayer by, by making us aware of his presence. By making us aware that he is there. Okay? And that we feel consolation. We feel peace. We feel like a sense of communion with God. Okay? And when we struggle in our spiritual life, then we find that, that the, the outcome of our spiritual life, the reward of our spiritual life, the relationship that we have with God is something that we value, right? If, 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 if the spiritual life was just something that was given freely, so quickly to anyone from the moment that they ask it, suddenly we, we're all like saints, right? Imagine like, like we're, we ask God, you know, we want to be saints and suddenly God snaps his fingers and we're all saints. We would have no appreciation for what does it mean to be a saint. We'd have no appreciation for the struggle against the flesh. We'd have no appreciation for the difficult path that that is when God says, you know, when Christ says that you have to walk the narrow path. What is what is the narrow path, right? Anything that you struggle for is, and you attain is something that you value, that you appreciate, and you understand better than simply being given something for free. Um. St. Augustine, he also says what? The man, Jacob, defeated the angel, yet the conqueror persists on holding the angel until he blesses him. What a great mystery. The defeated blesses the conqueror, right? So in this case, the defeated is, is God. He blesses the conqueror, who is the one who like, is the one who endured to the end of the battle, which is Jacob. He was defeated because he chose that to appear weak in his flesh form, although in his greatness he was strong. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. Okay, What happened with Jacob before his encounter with Esau to overcome him with love refers to what the Lord Christ did coming as weak, carrying our nature to occupy the last row, to be counted as a trespasser and to bear the disgrace of the cross. But risen from the dead, he blesses our nature and renews it in him. So he's saying, like, just as Christ, when he was incarnate, he came as someone who, who, who appeared weak, right? Christ in his incarnation as a man, he appeared weak. He, 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 you know, people saw him as a frail person, as someone who was not powerful, someone who was not a conqueror, someone who was not like, you know, able to have victory in the physical sense. Um, and, and this is the same here with this angel, right? This, this, when, when Jacob is wrestling with God here, okay, the struggle with God, God is like defeated, okay? But he's defeated because he allows himself to be defeated, not because he is weak. Um, St. Ambrose, he speaks about this also, okay? And, and he speaks about the hip joint. So here, in, when, we, when we read this, it says what? Um, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him, okay? So St. Ambrose, he mentions, uh, he comments on this idea of the hip joint. And he says what? He believes that this socket of his hip getting out of joint, it refers to the fellowship of his passion with the Lord Christ, who will incarnate through his seed. So, so remember, the Messiah is going to be born of the seed of Jacob, right? That was part of this covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that he was to be born, the incarnation of the Lord was to happen through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So St. Ambrose is saying that this Touching of the hip is kind of like um, a symbol of the kinship, the fellowship, uh, 
between the two of them. Okay, so he says this. He says, in his passion, he acknowledges the air of his body, right? The air of his body. And by him, he would pre-identify the passion of his air through what happened to the socket of his hip. So the, 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 this represents the incarnation of the Christ, of Christ coming from Jacob and, and the, the passion, the, 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 the suffering and the crucifixion that would happen to the Lord, right? As coming from the line of Jacob. Lastly, here, um, when he said to him, what is your name? And he responded and he said, Jacob. Um, and then he, he changed his name. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel. Okay, do, do you remember what the name Jacob meant? Jacob. So Jacob can mean either like deceiver or supplanter. What is the supplant? What does it mean to supplant? Supplant means like to take the place of, right? To take the place of someone. So who is it that he took the place of? Esau. Okay. So so even in when he was born, he grabbed onto the the heel of Esau, right? So so his name was supplanter or deceiver, referring to what he did with Esau. But now his name is changed to Israel. What does Israel mean? Yes, wrestles with God. Okay, good. Wrestles with God. So this new name, okay, represented not just him as a person, but represented the whole people, right? It, it's not just um, a personal name change, but it is, sorry, this thing is like, okay. Um, but it represents the spiritual struggle of everyone, right? This is why we are the spiritual Israel, because we should be spiritually wrestling with God. We should be spiritually seeking from God that which is what we desire, not just like the physical things, but a desire to be with God. And that this is not something that happens for free. This is not something that we just ask God one time and it's there. In order for us to really attain this, right, we have to struggle with God to attain it. And we see in the lives of all the saints who, who have attained it. It wasn't just one day of fighting or one week of fighting. It was a lifetime of struggle and labor for them to achieve the, 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 the connection and the relationship with God that they wanted. Okay. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God's, for I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. Okay, and then here you can see on the map where it was that this happened. As, as Jacob was traveling south, okay, to meet with Esau. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip because he's, you know, his, his, his hip was now hurt from this fighting. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. And this is actually a custom um, that's practiced by some Jews, uh, even though it's not like expressly forbidden in the law not to eat this muscle. But um, the, the, some Jews, in order to remember this, um, like from in an animal, like they wouldn't eat this particular part of the animal to remember this wrestling with God that happened. Any questions about this chapter before I move on to the next chapter?
chapter 33. It says, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. And there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So remember, what is Jacob expecting when he meets Esau? Yeah, revenge, right? Because Esau, Esau was upset with Jacob. That's why Jacob ran away to begin with. Esau was upset with Jacob because Jacob deceived his father and received the blessing from his father instead of Esau. Okay? So Jacob is now returning, feeling guilty, feeling bad about what he's done, and afraid of Esau and what Esau might do to him. Okay? So Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. Okay? And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Okay, well, this tells us something about this ordering. Okay, so essentially the, the, the people he cares about the most, he put them in the end. Because they are the last people that he wants to be harmed by Esau. And it gives him a chance if he begins to see that the groups that are in front of him are being ambushed or attacked. Then he's able to like run away with them. Yes. Well, from the beginning, there's a problem. From the beginning, the problem is that Jacob is favoring Rachel instead of Leah. But actually, Rachel is the one he wanted to marry, right? Yeah. Like he didn't even want to marry Leah, but he got Leah because her her father gave gave her to him. But he didn't originally want to marry her, and so there was this constant competition between Leah and Rachel and who could bear the most children and so on, right? So here, like in the mind of um, in the mind of Jacob, Rachel and her children are like the, you know, the, the most precious to him and, and Joseph specifically, because he was the youngest at the time. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So Esau actually, he didn't have any animosity in his heart anymore from what happened, but he was actually joyful to see Jacob. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children and bowed down. So everyone is like, has this very humble posture to Esau. Everyone is coming, they're bowing down, they're calling him Lord, they're, they're offering, you know, their things to him. And Leah also came near with her children and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company, which I met? So, so Esau is seeing all these droves of people, right? Remember from, from last time? Like he divided essentially all of his things up into these different groups and he sent them one group at a time, one group at a time, so that if Esau were to attack them, then the rest would not be affected and he could run away. Okay. So Esau saying, why, why are you doing this? Like, why are you sending all these groups to me? You know, from the things that are yours and from your family and from your servants and all this stuff. And then he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. So he's like, this is like an offering. I'm offering all of this, right, to find favor in your sight. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Right? You see here actually like a very like beautiful like sign of peace between these two brothers. And maybe when, when we think about like uh, people that have conflicts that have happened in the past, maybe even brothers or sisters or close friends, 
that have had conflicts about some, some big issue that happened, and they go the rest of their life feeling hatred toward one another and not wanting to reconcile. But here, after 20 years, you know, the experience of life, the time that's passed, it, it, it makes both these brothers to feel like they, they, they want to be brothers again, like they want to be reconciled again. Jacob feels sorrow for what he did, and Esau has put away any kind of hatred or anger from him because originally he wanted to kill him, right? But now 20 years later, he's like very, very kind and he doesn't even want to accept from Jacob what it is that he's offering. And Jacob said, no, please, I have now found favor in your sight. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you are pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dwelt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it, right? So Jacob and Esau, Esau doesn't want to accept any of these gifts until Jacob insists and then finally he accepts. Yes. It's like, it's an exaggeration, but essentially he's saying like, I'm so happy to see you just as I would have, you know, be happy to see the face of God. It doesn't mean that it's actually like seeing God, but it's, it's, it's like, it is sufficient. Like Esau is saying, it is sufficient for me as a gift to simply have seen you. That's how, um, like that's how joyful I am to having seen you, right? So I don't need to accept any gift. <clears throat> yes, sorry, you're right. Yes, yes. Yeah, so he's saying to Esau that it's like being reunited with him is like that. But in the end, Esau doesn't accept the gift. Okay. Yeah, you want to read that again? Right, so, so Jacob is saying, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough, okay? And then finally, after all that, he accepts it. But initially, he didn't accept it. Yeah. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau told him, let's all travel together, right? So um, Jacob was heading down south into the area where Esau was living, okay, in the land of Seir. And so Esau told him, come and we'll, we'll go together. But Jacob said, I can't go at your pace. Remember, Esau, he had with him these 400 men. They were going to travel at a pace different than his people and all the livestock that he had and his wives and his children, including young children and so on. So he said, I'm not going to go with you, but I will catch up with you eventually. Okay, I will catch up, catch up with you eventually. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau offered now to offer some of his people to help them, but Jacob refused. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. 
Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Sukkot means booths, okay? So Jacob is taking a very, very big detour. Like he's not, he's not like traveling straight, okay? He, he's going to stop and dwell for a while, okay? Because he doesn't, he's not able to travel so easily um, as, as Esau. So he made himself a house. He, he made a place for all his livestock. Like he made like a little village, you know, like for himself where he is to dwell in that place. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he, had, uh, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. Okay, so he's going to dwell there. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Okay, so they meet there, this family. Okay, the, the patriarch of this family, the head of the family, his name is Hamor. And he has a son whose name is Shechem. And this land belonged to them. So they purchased the land for 100, for 100 pieces of money to dwell there. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. Okay. This means the God of Israel. This is the altar that he put there so that he could offer to God. Okay. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. What do you think about this? Who is Dina? Dina is the one girl that at least we know was born from them, the only one that's mentioned that was born of Jacob. Okay? And it says that she went out to see the daughters of the land. What does that mean to you? What do you think that means? Who are the daughters of the land? The Canaanites, right? The, the other women of the Canaanites, right? So, like, Jacob and his family were the only uh, God-fearing people, like, in, in that whole area. Like, there was no one else, right? Even Esau, okay, their people were pagan, okay? So they don't, they, Jacob is the one who has like a different standard to live by. He's the one who has received all the promises from God. He is the one whose name has been changed. He is now like the patriarch of Israel. All of his people are different from the rest. Okay. And so Dina, this is his daughter, decides that, you know, they're sitting, there's nothing to do. Maybe they're, she's sitting there. I'm going to go over and see, I'm going to check out the, the place. I'm going to go around and I'm going to see all the daughters of the land. I'm going to meet with the people of the land. Okay. This by itself was not that great an idea because she's going to intermingle with these people who don't have their same values, don't have their same beliefs, don't have their same, you know, destiny. They're not one people and could cause a lot of problems. Okay. Um, we also like, sometimes we do this, you know, like when we talk about like um, friendships, like having friends, who are the kinds of people that we choose to have friends, right? It doesn't mean that all of the friends that we have have to be Coptic Orthodox. But the people that we choose to be friends should be people that, sh that have some kind of shared morals, shared values, you know, shared way of life, something that we can have in common. Certainly not someone that's going to be a bad influence on me. Okay. And here, her going out to the daughters of the land, it's very likely that she was going to get mixed up with people who are not the best people. Okay. But she, she went out. And she went out like without supervision, without any of her brothers with her without anyone kind of guiding her. She just went on her own. And when Shechem, 
Remember, he is the son of the, of the head of that family in that area who is Hamor. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Right? So he raped her. You know, he, he raped her and he wanted to marry her. Okay, so um, he went to his father and he told him, I want to marry this woman. Like, go talk to Jacob and get me this woman to be my wife. Because now Jacob and Hamor, they have a relationship because Jacob purchased the land from Hamor. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dina, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Okay, so not only the rape was the problem, the problem was that the intermingling between the Israelites and the Gentiles is something that should not be done. All throughout history, God commanded that the Israelites should not intermingle with the Gentiles. And that ultimately the Gentiles were going to be the downfall of the Israelites. Even when pre in previous chapters, when Esau cho chose to take some of the Philistine women as wives, it said that it was like caused like a, like a heartache to his parents, right? Because it is forgetting the purpose. And it's very easy for us for the sake of our desire to forget the purpose that we are in. Right? A lot of times when we sin, we sin because the, the desires that we have in the moment are, are stronger and greater and makes us forget the purpose that we are. What is our purpose? Like, what is our purpose in the world? We have a certain purpose. We have a certain witness. We have a certain testimony. We have a certain role and job that God has asked us to do. Okay? And in these moments when we fall into sin, we forget that purpose and we begin to live like the rest of the world. And this is exactly what happened here. Dina, of course, it's not her fault that she got raped. Okay? But her decision to go and to be among the people of the land, she's like forgetting who she is. Like, I am called to be part of the family of Jacob. We are the people of God. Okay, And we live a certain way and we don't intermingle with the other people in the land. At no point in time, before this, do we see that the, 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 the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they ever intermingled, right? Except we read when Esau did it, it was a problem. Even when Abraham wanted Isaac to get married, he told his servant, do what? Go and find a wife for Isaac from among my own people, not from the people that are living here in the land. So Dina to go and to go among those people to intermingle with those people, to socialize with those people, to go see those people, that was like the first step toward a problem, okay? And even if the problem didn't happen like this, where she was raped, but the problem is happening because she is allowing herself to, to be now close to and in union with the people who have a completely different value system, who have a completely different religion, who have a completely different way of life than her and her own people, right? This is a problem. And we see that in this case, the, the, the initial manifestation of this issue 
had to do with the situation that happened with her. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting how um, it's like they also, they, they, they already like um, identify themselves like as a nation, you know, like the nation of God. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel, right? Because Israel is actually Jacob, Jacob's Israel. Like our family is Israel. Our family is the people of God at this point. This small group of people is the people of God. So, so that group of people is called to live in a certain way, right? Just as we are called to live in a certain way, we are called to live in a, in a consecrated way, in a way that is set apart, in a way that's not like others, right? Because we have been chosen by God and have a purpose that God has created us for and we have been redeemed by him. That Moses was like declaring it, that it was already Israel. It was already Israel. It wasn't, it wasn't technically a nation. It became a nation after they left Egypt, okay? And that's why God decided then, that's when they would be given the land, because they were now a large number of people. But they were technically the Israelites, okay, because Jacob is Israel. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem. Okay, so Hamor is speaking to Jacob about this incident that happened. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. What do you think about this offer? No? Messed up? Messed up? How is it messed up? It's just like, we'll just trade. We're good. Like just, everything's like materialistic. Very materialistic. Sounds pretty appealing. Sounds appealing to who? Sounds appealing to Hamor for sure because he sees that Jacob is wealthy and he wants to share with him. Okay. Um, also, it's a it's a compromise, right? So it's like saying, yeah, sure, we, you know, from from the perspective of Jacob, right? Um, we are called to to live apart. We are we have our own faith. We live apart. Okay. But this is a quite an appealing offer. Yeah, we can dwell and we can trade and we can intermarrying we can do all this like from from maybe like a financial perspective from a trading perspective somebody would look at this and say this is a good deal okay but from the spiritual perspective this was a horrible deal because this was going to dilute the the people to where they would lose their identities right and this is when we speak about diversity and unity right and a lot of times we use the term diversity as though diversity is always a good thing but we have to understand what do we mean when we say diversity, okay? Diversity that's good is people from a diverse background all being united together in one thing. That's when we say diversity, that's really what we want. But for instance, in the church, we want the church to be diverse. We don't want the church to only be Egyptians, right? We want the church to have people from every ethnicity, right? But why do we say that? We say that because we want everybody from every place to come to the church to be united in one purpose, which is to worship God and to work out their salvation here in the church. So that we in the church are united. And even though we have differences, the things that really matter, we are the same. Right? That is a good kind of diversity because we are we are diverse and becoming one. You know, like, e pluribus unum, that's written on the, the money. You know, what does that mean? 
For many one. That's what it is. For many one. That's why in America, like that was the principle that was America was founded on. Is you have people from all these different countries that are coming to one place, and now they have a new national identity, which is the American identity, even though ethnically they're from all different places. The same is true of the church. But when you say, speak about diversity with no concept of unity, where it's just we are different. How are we different? We're different in every way. We're different in the way we look. We're different in our language. We're different in our in our clothing. We're different in our beliefs. We're different in our religion. We're different in our sexual orientations. We're different in absolutely everything possible. And then we say all of these differences without anything common, without any unity at all, we can't say that that's good. Because actually that's impossible. It's impossible to take a group of people who are different in absolutely every way and then imagine that somehow you can have peace among them, that you can have some kind of group identity from that group, right? You have to decide what is it you're gonna be united in. Even in America, you know, more and more, this is becoming an issue. What is American? What is actually in common between everyone? Because people like baseball, like is that American? There definitely used to be a lot more things that people were in common in, in our country than it is today. And it's diverging more and more and more because there has been no real effort to unite anyone according to certain principles or certain values. And I'm not even speaking from like a religious perspective, just any kind of perspective. Multiculturalism. And that's the problem with multiculturalism, okay? It's good to have multiple cultures. And that multiculturalism sounds like a good word. It's, it's, it's good. We, we, we wanna have multiple cultures but multiple cultures that are united together in something. They don't have to have the same background. They don't have to have the same uh, you know, ethnicity. But, but in the end, we come together. So like in the church, for instance, we all say the same creed, right? We all believe the same thing. We all attend the same liturgy. We all take communion together, right? This is unity. This is unity. What if we had people coming to the church that didn't all have the same faith? Some people say, you know, I don't like the liturgy. I'm not going to attend it. I chose to just pray at home. Another person says, you know, I don't like taking communion this way. I'm going to start my own church. I'm going to take communion a different way. They, these divisions now are, are divisions, and you could say diversity, if you want to use that word diversity, but diversity on things that are fundamental that we cannot be diverse on because God is the one who commanded that they should be done a certain way. So if we all are in union, in, in unity, in following God, then everything God has commanded needs to be in union and in, 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 in like unity with us. We follow the one thing God said, because God didn't say do it these 10 different ways. He said, do it this way, this one way. So everything else, we can be different. We can, we can have differences and differences actually are good. Even when God gives the gifts of the spirit, he gives gifts in, in diversities. He says there are diversities of gifts, diversities. We're not all, we don't all have exactly the same gift. Actually, if we all have the same gift, St. Paul, he likens that to like a body that was all an eye. The whole body is just an, a big eye. Everybody's an eye, or everybody's a foot, or everybody's an ear, right? You, you can't function, right, like that. You have to have diversity. But the diversity is working together to create one body, and that we all work together as one, right? This is what's lacking. In our society today, everyone's just speaking about diversity, and that's it. Well, what about the unity part? You, you, the diversity is good, but you have to connect it to the unity because if there's no unity, diversity by itself is chaos. 
but there's nothing good that just comes from being different from everybody. We have nothing in common, right? So here, right, what Hamor is offering to Jacob is very, um, could be considered very attractive from a worldly perspective. Financially, this is going to be a good deal for us. We are travelers. We don't have permanent dwelling here. We can set up a trade. We can gain more money. We can be more established. From a worldly perspective, this is a good deal that Hamar is offering. Then Shechem said to her father, okay, to Jacob and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. Okay, so here Hamer is saying, we want to make peace with you. We want to live with you. We want to share all things from you. I'm going to pay whatever it is. Just give her to me as a wife. Okay. Um, from a spiritual perspective, the church fathers actually speak about Hamor. And actually, Hamor is the same word as Hamar. Okay, which means donkey. So he, he like represents uh, the devil. Okay, and from a spiritual perspective, he represents the devil. And he tries to persuade people to do the work of the devil. And this is what Hamor is trying to do here from, from the spiritual perspective. He's trying to allure, to tempt. He's trying to make a, a, an offer that you can't refuse, right? Give up your identity. Give up who you are. And look, I'm going to give you all these things, right? And you will be one with us. Doesn't that sound so nice? We say, oh, we were going to be one. But one based on what? Okay. Um, he's like attracting people to a life of sin, right? The devil. Marrying, like he wants to marry us. But he, the devil wants to marry us. He wants to be married to us. He wants us to be married to him. He wants us to follow him wherever he goes, right? He wants us to be like infatuated with him and his ways instead of God and his ways. Um, uh, St. Paul, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, what communion has light with darkness? This is exactly here. What communion has Jacob and his people, the people of God, with Hamor? Hamor is a pagan man, right? Just because you offer these things to me, just because the devil offers these things to me that are very attractive, does it make me forget and lose sight of who I am, of what God created me for? Right? We should be very careful when we're offered these enticing offers. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully. Okay, so now um, the sons of Jacob are upset. They can't stand the fact that this happened to their sister. And so now they are going to deceive Hamor. They spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dina, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who was uncircumcised. For that would be a reproach to us. So on, 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 from, from the outside, that sounds okay. Yeah, you know, the, the circumcision is, is the sign of being among the people of God. We can't be united with you unless you're also in the people of God. So you need to be circumcised like us. Okay. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you. And we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us, 
and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. So while in some sense, from a very superficial perspective, when you look at it, you say, okay, well, um, circumcision is important. God told all the people that they had to be circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. So if, if you tell these people to be circumcised, that means you care about obeying God and you care about not intermingling with people who are not among the people of God. But it's from a very superficial perspective. It's a very external change without a change of heart. Just because those people were circumcised doesn't mean that they became obedient to God. Doesn't mean that they feared God. Doesn't mean they cared about God. Doesn't mean anything. All it means is that that's what they had to do in order to get what they want. Okay? And it reminds me of people who want to convert to the Orthodox faith simply because they want to get married. Right? There, there are people who, and we all know, right, who, who come to the church. Are they really interested in the faith? Do they really want, they really believe this is true? Or are they what? Are they thinking more like, what do I need to do in order to marry this person? And that's it. You know, what do I need to do to marry this person? And we talk about catechism and we talk about lessons and we talk about this and this. There are people that are very, very like keen and responsible and want to learn. There are people who really want to learn. And those people, after their baptism, they stay in the church and they can actually become great servants. But sadly, there are people also who are the opposite of this. They will come and do whatever they need to do in order for them to get married. And once they get married, they disappear. Right? Building their house on the sand. Yes, building the house on the sand. So this idea here, of we want to do some external action, some external circumcision that looks like genuine, that looks like it's the real deal, but it's not the real deal. It's something fake, superficial, just uh, going through the motions, right? We are not really among the people of God. This is actually why we have catechism in the church. We have catechism. Actually, one time there was uh, a group of Lutherans who actually came here to the church, and I was giving them a tour of the church. And at the end, there was uh, like a Q&A, and uh, one of the ladies, she asked this question. She's, she asked, well, why is it that, like, do you need to be Orthodox in order to take communion in the church? And I said, yes. You know, and she wanted to understand why. And I told her, because if we allow people who didn't have our same faith to, to be joined in communion with us, then the whole church is going to lose its faith because there is not going to be a faith anymore. We allow everyone from every possible faith to come and say, well, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. This is what I believe. So we have no unity. It goes back to the idea of diversity without unity. Right. So so here. What they asked, of course, it was a deceit, but what they asked them to do. From the perspective of the world, from the perspective of Hamor, that's all there was. That's all that mattered. People from the outside of the church, they look at us and they see that we just kind of do some strange, frivolous, nonsense rituals. And as long as anyone does them, then that means that there's salvation. And that means it reminds me of in the book of Acts when one of the, um, I think it was like one of the centurions or one of the Romans was speaking about um, the Christian faith. And about Paul, and he was giving a summary or description of what is it that Paul believed. And he essentially said, yeah, there are people who believe that this man Jesus died, and other people are saying that he rose from the dead, that he didn't die. And that was it. Like, that was, from the Roman perspective, that was their understanding of what Christianity was. Some disagreement about whether some guy died or not. That was, that was the faith. And the faith was, I believe that he didn't die. 
And people who didn't have that faith, they believe that he died. You know, a very superficial understanding of Christianity, right? And sadly, even today, there are many people who have very superficial like understanding of Christianity. What is it that we actually believe? They don't, they don't understand. And here definitely, Hamor and his brothers don't understand what Jacob represented and who Jacob was. Um, so the brothers, right, they, they make this offer to Hamor. So it says, and their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. See, that's interesting, okay? He was more honorable. The one who raped her was more honorable, okay, than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city. These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to, uh, to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. So like Hamor and Shechem are going to the rest of the clan and they're saying, this is the agreement that we made. Okay, we're, this is what we're going to do. And this is in, in exchange. This is what's going to happen. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. Look, at this is the only thing they care about is livestock and property, right? Yeah, we'll endure circumcision because we get livestock and property and we'll get to marry our women and, and, and everything will be great. They don't care about whether this, what this means. Like, why is it even that you are circumcised? For what purpose? Like, there's no, there's no depth of understanding at all. It's a completely superficial act. And all who went out of the gate of his city, heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Okay. So this represents like a very outward transformation that's happened, without an inward transformation. Even though these men had undergone the outward symbol of transformation. They did not have the inward transformation that was actually transforming them. Like just because someone comes to be baptized, right? But chooses to live a life of sin without repentance, right? From the outside, you can look at this person and say, well, this person is an Orthodox Christian, right? This person has gone through baptism. But what about the inside? Has the inside been transformed? Has the person accepted to be transformed on the inside? Or have they only done what is on the outside? Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. So now all these adult men have been circumcised. It's a bit painful. Okay. So they were in pain for several days. Um, when it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. So this is a very, very strong, extreme reaction, right? 
revenge for what is it that they had done to their sister. Okay, and and they use this opportunity of the circumcision as a trap in order for them to ambush them when they were weak. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? We see here the difference between the way that maybe people who are older and more experienced react to things compared to the younger. When Jacob was younger, he was very um, quick to make foolish decisions, okay? And deceive and lie and ambitious thinking about himself, okay? But now you see him when he's older, he's thinking about the bigger picture. Like, of course he didn't like what they did to his daughter, okay? Definitely not. But he's trying to think of how is this, like, is, is the right reaction? to go and kill all of them. And now what is this going to mean for us in the future? Like, can we think through the decision that we're making and not just operate completely on the emotion in the moment, right? As all his sons chose to do. So Jacob was distressed because now these people, his family has a reputation of being deceitful, right? So what about all these other nations? What about all these other people that live in the land that are more powerful than them? They could just come and kill them. They could come destroy them, right? And this is what Jacob is afraid of. Okay. Any questions so far? Okay. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Remember Bethel, which means house of God. This was the place where uh, Jacob saw the vision of the, of the ladder. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. Jacob wants his family to be purified. Remember when we spoke about how when Rachel uh, or when they were, when Jacob and his family were fleeing from Laban, that Rachel stole the household gods of her father, okay? Because Rachel grew up in a pagan family. She, she, grew, she did not grow up with uh, Isaac, right? She grew up with Laban, who was the brother of Rebekah, who lived in another place completely, who did not receive any of these promises and the covenant, okay? And, and they, they were idol worshipers. So she had these idols. So, so there is this, um, transition that needs to happen here, where the people of Jacob, they fully invest themselves into the belief of God, and they fully put away from themselves the idol worship, right? It, it's not like a one or the other. There were very, very few, if any, monotheistic religions all throughout history, except for Christianity and Judaism, right? The Jews, they lived in a place where they were the only ones who believed only in one God. The idea of believing only in one God is strange. Because why, why did people believe in multiple gods? Because they looked around nature and they said, well, there must be, look at the sun. I can't explain the sun. I can't explain what the sun is. So we attribute it to the work of a God, the God of the sun. And the moon is a separate entity from the sun. And I can't understand it. 
So I attribute it to the God of the moon. And I don't understand the rain. Why does the rain come? Sometimes. Okay, I attribute it to the God of rain. And certainly the rain, the sun, and the moon are all different things. Right? Why would I imagine that the same God is behind them all? So in, 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 in the religions of the time, okay, and all throughout the Old Testament, they believed in multiple gods. The idea that, no, we believe that there is one God, and this God created everything, and is in charge of everything, and makes everything to operate, okay, is, is, is difficult. And that this God, he has no physical form. You know, like in the second commandment, when, he got, when God says, you will make no carved image, you will make no carved image even of him. Like, not just you are not going to worship other gods, but when you worship the true God, you are not going to make a physical manifestation of that God to worship. This is why when Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and the people at the bottom, they told Aaron, make for us a golden calf, right? So after Aaron made the calf, he pointed to it and he told the people, look, this is the God who uh, delivered you from, from Egypt. This calf is the God who delivered you from Egypt. Does, that, does, he, does he mean by saying that, that he has actually stopped worshiping God and now is worshiping a calf? Or is he meaning, look, Moses has gone up on the mountain and we don't know where he is and God is not speaking to us. So we need to see something with our eyes in order to believe, in order to, to, to remember, to, to, to believe in God. And look, we made this calf as a representation of this God that we worship, right? So this God, this, this golden calf is the God. He is the God that, that, that led us out of Egypt. He is the same, one and the same God. That's what they believe in. That he is the one and the same God as the one who parted the Red Sea. Not that he's a different God. Not that they don't believe in the God who parted the Red Sea anymore. Now they believe in this one. No. So here this idea that God is requiring and asking of the people to not make any images of him not to have any idols whatsoever, either of foreign gods or of him. This is why in, during the time of, in, in the book of Samuel, whenever the people will go out to war, what would they take with them to war? The Ark of the Covenant. Because they didn't know how to not have something physical. They, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to stay in the tabernacle. That was, that was, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to stay in the Holy of Holies. It was for worship in, in, in the tabernacle. It wasn't as a, as, a, as, a, as a good luck charm to take it with us around in battle. And actually, that's why when they did take it in battle, God allowed the Philistines to capture it. You know, they, they had a hard time of just believing in a God they could not see. Okay? And we also sometimes have a hard time believing in a God that we do not see. Okay? Here, Jacob is telling them, put away your old ways. Your old ways, your old faith, your old understanding, put it away. God is calling us to something new. There is something new. What we already know, put it aside, put it away. It's, it's not relevant to us anymore. It's not right. It's not right. We, God is calling us to something new. Put away the foreign gods. Purify yourselves, right? We are going now to this place, Bethel, okay, to make an altar there to God, to the one God not to all these other gods that are not really gods. And why? He, this God, the one we are worshiping, the one we are making an altar for, is the one who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. 
Jacob now fully believes in God. He has experienced God from the very beginning, from the moment that he fled from Esau, for the 20 years that he was with Laban, to coming back and now meeting with Esau again, and seeing all the things that have happened, he has now changed, right? He doesn't have the same faith. He is not the same person that he was at the beginning. He is different now, okay? So if we are going to Bethel, which is the house of God, we have to be pure when we enter. We cannot have foreign gods with us as we are entering, right? Because this is the place of the one true God. So they gave Jacob all of the foreign gods, which were in their hands, and the earrings, which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Okay. These earrings and things were probably like ornaments that was used in like various pagan religious practices. Okay. So taking all of these things and burying them represents like a change of life, burying the old works, burying the old way of life, the destruction of the old man so that the new man can resurrect, right? And they journeyed. I didn't read that, but that's a meditation, yeah. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Look, God put, and this is God kept doing this constantly with them, okay? Even though now they are a minuscule number, this is not like a large number of people. You know, like when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, there were millions of people. So anyone looking at them would be like, okay, this is a scary sight. Like, I'm afraid of this group of people. Here you're talking about just nothing. So few people. The number of people that... that that were alive in Jacob's family at the time when Jacob and his brothers entered into Egypt, when Joseph was there, was only 70 people, right? So right now you're talking about even less than that probably. So for these nations that Jacob just said were much larger in number from compared to them, for them to be terrified, okay, of them means that God placed it in the hearts of these other nations to be terrified. To, to He placed a grace and a protection around Jacob and his family that he is protecting them from everyone else. The terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. They, they recognized the work of this God. Now, maybe they acknowledged him only as one God of many, these other nations, but they acknowledged him, right? They acknowledged him as God. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Elon Bachuth. This means the terebinth of weeping. Okay, that's what that name of the tree was. Rebecca's nurse died and was buried there. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Okay, this is like a recounting of when he, he made his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, 
and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So as we see many times that God has renewed the covenant, multiple times with Abraham, multiple times with Isaac, and here multiple times with Jacob. He, God is reminding Jacob of who he is, right? He's reminding Jacob of who he is. You are different than the rest. You live a certain way. You are consecrated to me. You have a purpose, a greater purpose, you know, than what you even understand. Because why is it that God is making him into a mighty nation? Is it because God cares about who, who are the nations and the borders on the earth? No, he cares about salvation of people. That it was through him that the Messiah is eventually to be born. So he was preparing the place where he himself would incarnate. Okay. And here the term God Almighty in, in Hebrew, this is actually one of the names of God, El Shaddai. Okay. El Shaddai is one of the names of God. It's always translated God Almighty. Okay. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So he had already done this previously, where he had, he poured like a oil on a rock and anointed it. And now as he, this is the second time he's come to Bethel, he's doing it again. This pillar represents the Messiah, who is the anointed, right? Messiah means the anointed one, right? And here, when, when God is reminding Jacob of who he is and reminding him of who is going to come from his loins, right? And here Jacob is anointing this pillar, which represents the Messiah himself who was to come from him. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. So remember at this point, there's only 11 sons that have been born. Right, not the 12. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Right, so this was the last son, Benjamin, the youngest of the 12 to be born. She named him Ben Oni. Ben Oni means son of my grief. But Jacob named him Benjamin, which means the song of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Okay, so um, here, if you remember when we spoke about what Rachel and Leah represent, do you remember? Jacob represents who? Christ. And, ja and uh, Leah represents? Yes, the Jews and Rachel, the Gentiles. So here, when Rachel dies, okay, in that analogy, this represents the departure of the human soul of the Gentiles to have eternal rest with God after their labor on earth. Like she's struggling in labor, she dies, and as the Gentiles who have salvation from the Lord, right, who have a relationship with the Lord, just as she has a relationship with Jacob, right, in this representation, that she gives, she 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 gives up her soul and, and 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 goes to her eternal rest in paradise. Okay, that's what this represents. So, what gives grief to the church, right? Because she named her son Ben Oni, right? What gives grief to her, like her struggle, right? Ben Oni means the son of my grief. Actually, in the eyes of God, it brings joy to God, right? When He called him Benjamin which means what? Song of my right hand. 
it says something about the way we see suffering and the way that God sees suffering, right? Because we are Rachel, right? And we struggle in labor here in the world. And we have grief, then only, okay? But the Lord looks at the grief that we have and he doesn't see it as grief. He sees it as joy, okay? This is why St. Paul, when he says that we are enduring this light affliction here in the world that is for a time, but that we will benefit and we will enjoy this eternal weight of glory in heaven. What is, what, what is difficult for us here, this light affliction we're experiencing here, is what will produce for us the eternal weight of glory in heaven. So when God sees the benefit of the suffering of the human being here in the world, it is not that he turns a blind eye or that he doesn't care about human suffering. But he sees that this human suffering is producing glory for us and eternal joy in heaven. So this is why he allows it. And this is why for him it is joy. So just as here Benjamin, uh, sorry, Jacob, called his son the song of my right hand, the same one that Rachel called the son of my grief. Then Israel uh, journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Okay, so now we have some problems. Okay. Reuben was the firstborn. He was born of who? Who was his mother? Leah. Leah right? Because she was the first one to give children to Jacob, Reuben. He here committed a sin. Okay. He went and he slept with the concubine of his father, the concubine of his father, okay? For this reason, he became cursed. So if you read in Genesis 49, Genesis 49 is the final blessing that Jacob gives to his kids before his death. And he goes through each one of his children. So this is what he says about Reuben, okay? This is in Genesis 49.3. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Right, so because of this sin, Reuben lost the blessing of the firstborn. So the firstborn blessing, how does the firstborn blessing work? The firstborn was supposed to receive double the portion of the rest. You know, like in the story of Elisha and Elijah, okay, Elijah was the prophet and Elisha was one of his disciples. And when Elijah was going to depart, Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. What is a double portion? The double portion means double from all of my peers. So for Reuben to receive the double portion, it means double from all the other sons because he was the firstborn son. That was the blessing that was received by the firstborn, okay? Um, we can read this in Deuteronomy 21. It says, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved wives, and if the firstborn is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife, in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, 
for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. So he's saying this, yeah, this is in the law of God. It says, if a man has two wives, one wife he treats preferentially because he loves her, and another wife he treats her worse, okay? And they both have sons. So who, which of the sons should receive the firstborn status? God says, don't give it to the son of the loved wife because she has already benefited from the love of the man, of the, her husband, but give it to the son of the, of the unloved wife as like a, as a recompense, okay, for his, his lack of love for his mother. And what should be his right? What should be like, what does he receive as being, having the right of the firstborn? He receives the double portion. Okay, so what does this mean? This means that Reuben lost his birthright. Okay, in First Chronicles chapter 5, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean that the birthright, first of all, why would the birthright go from Reuben to Joseph? And what does it mean that he has lost the birthright and that it has been given to the sons of Israel? How is that, like, what is the, is the result of him losing the birthright? Well, which tribe did Christ come from? Judah. Judah. So it has nothing to do with that. Joseph the man, not Joseph the tribe. Yeah, yeah, Joseph the man. Yeah, but here we're talking about the tribe of Joseph. Oh, oh, oh. That was the tribe of Joseph, uh, his sons, they were like each of them. Yes, okay. So there were four women that bore the 12 sons of, of Jacob, of Israel, okay? Two of them were wives, two of them were concubines, okay? Leah and Rachel were the wives, Bilha and Zilpa, uh, I think Zilpa was the other concubine. Okay, so the, the sons of the concubines are not considered in the firstborn status. It has to be the sons of a wife. So when Reuben, the firstborn son of Leah, lost the birthright, it fell upon the firstborn son of Rachel. The firstborn son of Rachel is Joseph. Okay, so this is why when you look at the tribes of Israel, when you look at the territories of Israel, like on the map, when you see, okay, where are all the, the territories of Israel? You don't see a place called Joseph. You see Ephraim and Manasseh, because Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons of Joseph. So, so Joseph got two territories named after his children. Reuben only got one territory. That makes sense? Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Okay, so now we have a total of 12. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac dwelt, now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So all this time Jacob was, or Isaac was still alive. 
but he was very old, right? He was already blind 20 years ago when he blessed um, uh, uh, Jacob, okay? He was, already, he was already blind. That's why he offered his blessing. At that point, he, he was really so sick, like he couldn't even function, okay? And uh, Isaac uh, ends up getting buried in the same cave, okay? The cave of uh, Machpelah that Abraham had purchased for burying Sarah. So ultimately, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac um, are all buried in the same cave, okay? Um, and then Rebecca as well, Rebecca, who's Isaac's wife, it's not recorded in the Bible when she died, but it is recorded that she was also buried in the same cave. So those four in the same cave, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca. Those two generations, Abraham and his wife, Isaac and his wife, they were all buried in that same cave. Any uh, any questions? Yeah, sorry on the was gathered with the people. So it was like I would, we didn't mean like physically, but probably like spiritually. So like it's just to indicate that the soul is mortal. Like yeah, this was like this is like a common phrase that's used whenever somebody dies. It's kind of like he he returned to his own to his own people, like the people who have died, his ancestors. It's like he has been gathered together with his ancestors. So yes, it, it is a reflection of the belief of eternal life. Yeah. Good. Any other questions, comments? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, O God. Grant us your peace and everything. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come and to restore uh, more services in the church. We ask, O God, that you teach us important lessons that we learn, O Lord, from the story of Jacob and his family. Grant us, O Lord, always to be serving you, desiring to be pleasing in your sight, not falling into sin and not being tempted by the devil. To always remember our, our identity in you, who we are, and not to forget, O oh God, how much you paid in order to redeem us to yourself. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the community the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen.